When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. In late 17th century London... Women outnumbered men in urban populations by three to two. In such circumstances, it's perhaps little wonder then that girls and women who maintained themselves were ordinary, familiar figures in early modern cities. And some 16% of London's households were found to be headed by women in 1693. But it is still surprising because this is not the story that's been told about women's work. Women's economic labour has generally been envisaged as informal, underskilled and underpaid. Now, the key organisational structure of working life for male artisans was the Guild, an association of craftsmen or merchants traditionally organised around a particular trade or craft for mutual aid, protection and regulation. For example, by ensuring that Guild membership was only available to those who met a certain standard of workmanship. In 17th century London, livery companies functioned as guilds. Apprentices normally earned the freedom of the City of London at the end of their apprenticeship, which enabled them to set up as a master of their craft and then take on apprentices of their own. This career route has traditionally been thought to be the preserve of men, but it turns out that 17th century guild records deliberately obscured the work of women. And today's guest has done painstaking archival research to bring women's work to light. Laura Gowing is Professor of Early Modern History at King's College London and an editor of History Workshop Journal. Her work focuses on the history of early modern women, gender and the body. She's the author of Domestic Dangers, Women, Words and Sex in Early Modern London and the prize-winning Common Bodies, Women, Touch and Power in 17th Century England. My copies of both are very well-thumbed because they're absolutely critical works in the field. So a new work by Laura Gowing is a major event. And here we have one. Published by Cambridge University Press, Professor Gowing's new work is Ingenious Trade, Women and Work in 17th Century London. And it's the revelatory conclusions within it that we're going to discuss today. Professor Gowing, it is a great pleasure to welcome you to Not Just the Tudors. I can't wait to discuss your new book. It's such a pleasure to be here. I'm really excited to be able to talk about it. Let's think about the period that we're talking about, late 17th century London, and work, and how work was regulated, training through apprenticeships, the guild system, how it structured the artisanal economy for both men and women. So the landscape that we're talking about is one in which, in late 17th century London, guilds are not perhaps as culturally dominant in regulating work and thinking about work as they are in 16th century Europe. And what I noticed about them from other sources was that they were starting to take women in as apprentices in a more conspicuous way than they had earlier. So the whole point of apprenticeship in late 17th century London, as earlier in the period, is you need to be free of a company to trade in the city of London. And that is true for both women and men. So in order to trade independently in your own name, you need to have the freedom of a company. And to have the freedom of a company, you have to have been an apprentice 
or you have to have bought the freedom through something called redemption, or you have to have inherited it through the patrimony of your father. And there's various complex ways in which women can do that, but apprenticeship is becoming a bit more possible. And in the process of looking for apprentices, I found a lot more women apprentices than I had expected, and a lot more young women being listed as apprentices than were appearing in the guilds. And it became clear that there's a much wider world of apprenticeship outside the guilds and kind of adjacent to the guilds, so that young women, much more than young men, are being taken on by mistresses who are married to artisans in the guilds, but not actually put into a formal record. So then they can't become free at the end of it, or they can if they make a special argument and it involves a lot more extra paperwork. So I got very interested in the relationship between the paperwork, whether it was recording women or suppressing women or taking women out of a record. And the women I looked at themselves had to do quite a lot of work with their own archive, like finding the documentation and making sure that they had their apprenticeships written down so that they could become free and start a little shop at the end of it. I suppose it might be useful to recap the sort of age in which girls were becoming apprenticed, the sort of trades they might have been apprenticed in. And just to address the first thing that comes to me, which is the extraordinary fact that you say that there are so many girls and women who are maintaining themselves, that these are ordinary figures in early modern cities, in itself seems very new to people. So when the girls I'm looking at become apprentices, the average age of that is 14, which is around about the same age that we're accustomed to thinking of girls in this period going into domestic service. So we're already in a world in which we know this is such a crucial fact about early modern gender relations, I think, in which most young people are going into service away from their families, possibly in the same town or city, but quite often a long way away, and going through adolescence and going through training for workplace and earning at a distance from a birth family, being supervised by some other household. And that's absolutely critical. It almost always is a married couple as well. And the standard length of an apprenticeship is seven years, but it seems to vary a little bit. It is going to be seven years. And if it's not seven years, in theory, in London, you can't become free at the end of it. But it turns out that quite a lot of girls are going, particularly gentry girls, are going into apprenticeships for shorter periods five years, possibly because they're not intending to become free at the end of it. But I think there's a lot of bending of the custom going on. The customs of London are very well known, but there's also quite a lot of manipulation of them. And it's clear that both the young women and their families are sort of learning about what London customs are and trying to figure out how they fit into them. It's better to have a shorter apprenticeship because then you get out of a training period quicker and you can move on and start your own business or do something else. And you also don't want to be prevented from marrying. So you want to be able to get out and marry as a possibility. So it is advantageous to have a shorter apprenticeship. But for the mistresses and masters, that's not a good thing. They want a long apprenticeship. So once they've taught them what to do, they need to be able to take advantage of the labour at the end of it. So there's a bit of a battle about how long you're going to keep the apprentices for. But a lot of them leave before the end. Yeah, there's a way in which you can graph that and see where the value of labour actually comes. And what are they doing? One of the exciting and peculiar things about London is the custom of London means that you can be a member of a guild and not actually practice that particular trade. So women who are apprentices in and later members of the Cloth Workers Guild and the goldsmiths and the fishmongers all turned out to be seamstresses. Sometimes it says that on the back of their indenture. Often it doesn't say that, but it's clear because they're working with a woman who is a seamstress rather than the husband. There are some women who aren't seamstresses, but the majority of them, the ones who are being apprenticed in guilds, seem to be learning to sew, which is quite an expansive trade. But they also go into other textile-related trades, and the poorer they are, the more likely they are to go into more textile-adjacent trades and other even unrelated stuff. So there's always been a lot of girls going into housewifery, which again is quite a skilled area. It can even involve reading and writing, it certainly involves knitting, can involve brewing, all the skills that are involved in learning how to run a house. Some are going into pastry making, there's a couple going into wig making, there's one who is apprenticed to a herb medicine woman, which is quite intriguing. And there's other girls going into framework knitting and things as really specific vis-a-vis poorer girls coming into apprenticeship from a parish background. So they're often orphans who are being apprenticed by the parish, cutting animal fur to put on shoes. So you can be apprentice in all these quite narrowly defined trades. And of course, all of these are trades which adult women are practising and training girls 
in. So we also get through the apprenticeship records quite a full sense of different kinds of trades that women are working in themselves, both married women and single women. And their membership of these guilds has been, until this point, underreported in the historiography. And your work suggests actually that part of the reason for this is not because there's not lots of them, but that they're hidden in the sources as well. Tell me about the process of trying to find them. There's been a really inspiring movement of feminist historians working out how to count women's work. I've drawn very much on that, although I spent a lot of time counting. <laughs> the numbers of women are still pretty small compared to overall occupational numbers. So really, my work is mostly qualitative. But one of the ways that historians have been doing this is by looking at time use studies and using incidental records of work in legal records to figure out what kinds of work men and women are doing and how much of their time they're spending working, which has become clear that there isn't a massive disparity in the amount of time that men and women are working. Thinking about it in terms of time really shifts how we understand the sort of time world and the place world of early modern England. I mean, it obviously makes sense that we don't have a world in which men are working, women aren't working. So what are they doing? And the other thing that emerged from that sort of work being done particularly by Jane Whittle at Exeter and her team has been that less of that time is taken up by care and domesticity than we might have expected and was quite an overlap, particularly in rural areas between the places that people are working in. Now, less of that kind of work has been done in urban areas, but Amy Erickson has done a great survey of all the sort of occupational records which mention where women are working and what they're working at, which also indicated really interestingly that married women are much more able to support themselves and much more likely to be supporting themselves of independent work than we used to think, and that households are very often complementary in terms of economic contributions. And married men and women are often working separately from each other as well as sometimes in the same trade. And why isn't this obvious in the records? The bigger context of this is we're also getting much more sense that men too are working at portfolio trades, portfolios of trades, trades that aren't the same as their technical occupation, and that the whole idea of occupational identity is much more complicated than we used to think. I think it was generally been an idea that occupational identity for men is fundamental to masculinity and manhood, and that's certainly true, but it doesn't mean they're tied to just one occupation. And the same is far more so true for women. There isn't a clear idea that a woman is defined by her occupation, as far as we know. But I think we're getting more sense that maybe women who do see themselves as defined by occupation, and certainly single women working in shops, single seamstresses, married women who are also sewing or running shops too. There's much more potential for thinking of female occupational identity outside the kind of obvious place, which would be midwifery. But there's also much more potential for seeing the more widespread everyday work. And that does partly come from apprenticeships. It's clear that apprenticeship was a way in which families right through the social spectrum planned for girls. And I was excited to find fairly elite families planning through their wills to put girls into apprenticeship and also much more scrappy personal arrangements to establish a future for girls much further down the social hierarchy, as well as documents from places like Christ's Hospital, which indicate where orphans are being apprenticed out to. So it's a route for girls to go into occupations. By this time, I'd say it's quite well known. At the same time, we have to ask why are records not clear about recording this? I think it's important to bear in mind that guilds have a vested interest in making their work sound like it's all men and it's all masculine and they're going to exclude women. The fundamental identity of a weaver is that he is not a woman and he does not depend on women's work. And guild rituals often revolve around binary gender distinctions as well. We see that in Europe as well as in England. And it's also apparently not in anyone's interest really to count the labour of women. It can't be seen as significant as it actually is in terms of the economy. I think the exciting thing about economic history over the last 20 years is it's really shifting these paradigms of dependency that have been so often applied to women's labour. That's all fascinating. It shows the sort of range of material that you've drawn on, even in that answer, you've mentioned wills, and you've mentioned looking at sort of things like Christ's Hospital. And it's clear that whilst you're finding you know, extraordinary numbers, like one statistic you give is that in the Glover's company in the late 17th century, over half of the apprentices were female. But that's the tip of the iceberg, because there's this gap that you reveal between the company registers and the legal records. 
How have you been able to use legal records to analyse gendered work? One of the peculiar things about this project for me has been that the legal records don't tell really so much stories of extraordinary upsets as everyday encounters. They are, however, also very rooted in the upper middling sort, much more so the record which I've previously worked on. And they are a bunch of people who are pretty articulate. And the women, particularly the young women, are complained about because they're so good at talking. They're happy to go and talk to the Chamberlain of London about how they think they've been mistreated. They're happy to represent themselves. They're good at telling stories. And that self-consciousness, I think, is very particular to the legal records of the later 17th century and fits in with a changing world of law and fiction, sort of world-making and characterization and books and stuff at that time. So I've used legal records in a sort of different way, I think, in this project, although I'm still very much drawing on ideas that by looking at what people said in court, you can get a sense of the possibilities of their worlds as well as how they represent themselves and how they construct memory, how they make themselves, if you like. But the records that I mostly used for this book were those of the Mayor's Court, which is an equity court in London, where apprentices could go to claim back their premiums when their apprenticeships broke down. So they sort of, they get the apprenticeships that don't work out, which is a large proportion of them. Some of these women paid very high premiums and the high premium ones are ones that we have the records of. So my most detailed records are from young women whose families pay between 20 and 50 pounds, massive sums to put them into five or eight year apprenticeships in the mid 17th century. And those are the core of it. And there's pages and pages of them and all their witnesses talking about what went wrong in the apprenticeship, but also the whole world of training and the expectations of that. And that was what I found particularly illuminating was exploring a world in which women expected to be trained, expected to be able to set up on their own, whether they were going to marry fairly soon or not marry at all, or just not know what they were going to do, but to expect at the age of 18, 19, 20, 21, to go out into the city and to set up a shop or to run a millinery business and get on with it. And I suppose these records give us a real insight into everyday life and actually are more valuable than many of our court case records, perhaps, that do just show us moments where things were sort of catastrophically wrong because they're giving us more of a sense, perhaps, of what is typical. It's hard to say. But they give us an idea of the individual circumstances, the intimacy of the relationship between the apprentices and those to whom they're apprenticed, and the nature of the way in which those things could go wrong, and the stories they have to tell to try and navigate their way through that court. Perhaps it might be useful to talk about one or two examples so we get a sense of what these records contain. Yes, I found them all terribly compelling because I got so interested in all the detail of it. One of the things that working with legal records of women's history, we realised more so now than when I first started out in this field, was all the stuff that we don't know. So there was, was a time when it felt like every single sentence that I read was telling me something, oh, we didn't know that, we really don't know that. One case that grabbed me in particular was that of Christina Hutchins, who's seemingly quite a young girl when she goes into an apprenticeship. I think she's about 10. Too young, and everyone complains that she's too young. People in the household have to look after her more. But over the years, her mother and her grandmother and her aunt come back to visit her and complain about how she's being treated in the case. And then her mistress complains about all the ways in which Christina was a bad apprentice. But what was most engaging about her was that she didn't want to be a seamstress. She'd been apprenticed to be a seamstress and she hated sewing. And she says very clearly that she hates sewing. And her mistress complained and all the other servants complained and the neighbours complained that she was always having tantrums and refusing to do it. In fact, she said she'd rather be a chambermaid. And rather than do the sewing that they set her to do, she would insist on going running errands. Let me go and get the water. Let me go and get the bread. So that also gave me a sense of how the household worked. She tried to escape from the household and do all this other stuff, which she wasn't meant to be doing. And her hands got really dirty and rough and her family didn't like that. And her clothes got really messy. So she wasted the expensive clothes she'd been put into the seamstress apprenticeship with and her family got cross about that and her mistress said it was all her fault. And then her mother complained that she was putting on weight and she was looking too sort of plump, which is really unusual. I can't think of any situation in which I've come across that kind of concern about weight and shape before, particularly between a mother and daughter, because mostly 17th century girls, what you hear about them is them starving themselves and it's a spiritual drama and people come and watch this idea that she's being too well fed in her apprenticeship is very unusual, but indicates the way in which the 
body of a young girl could also be a sort of subject of battles between mistress and apprentice and mothers and grandmothers and other female relatives. It felt that there's also some sense of way in which apprenticeship fits into networks, particularly networks of women recommending each other as customers and as mistresses and sort of setting up an alternative world. Although they're related to the guilds, quite a lot of their networking seems to be happening outside the guilds. They don't have much to do with the other women who are working nominally in the same guild, but they do have a lot to do with other seamstresses, other women running shops nearby, and they often live quite close to other people who they're involved with. One of the things they tried to do with Christina to get her to sew is they sent her out to learn how to make bone lace in somebody else's house. But the woman there said she was so badly behaved that she would corrupt all her other pupils and send her back again. And that made me realise that actually where she'd been sent to was a sort of little house in the West End where a widow was teaching a bunch of girls to sew. And we have no other records of these kind of places. We don't really know very much at all about education and training of young women of any status in the late 17th century. We know boarding schools. Hannah Woolley writes quite briefly about having run a school and how useful it is for girls to be not just at school, but to be apprentices in schools, working out the school. So that also opened up a little bit more about this fascinating world of, I think, really expanding horizons for middling sort girls in cities and towns in the late 17th century. So that you're going into the 18th century with women having quite substantive occupational expectations and occupational expectations being part of their identities. And I suppose, above all, what your work shows is that we've had an idea of women's work as being something that's informal and unregulated and flexible. And actually, what we have here are contracts. This is formal training. This is a completely different way of thinking about women's labour. Yes, that really was what gripped me early on was looking at the indentures by which women were enrolled into guilds and seeing how the paperwork was dealt with. And over years, I've talked about these two groups, particularly one in the City of London at Guildhall and spoken to elderly seamstresses who talked about their own indentures, which really reminded me how important the documentation of occupations are and also how aware women are when they have to adapt documentation. I've had students too, mature students, talking about having to work out their own paperwork, for example, getting a mortgage, working for a bank, filling in forms that were meant for men and having to cross them out so that they fitted them. So what the clerks of the guilds had to do is to rub out he and his on the pre-printed indentures, which are printed on little pieces of parchment and write in she. And they did this very carefully every time for legal reasons so that the indenture was as binding as it was meant to be. And then some guilds started to commission apprenticeship indentures which were written specifically for women, which had she on them, and others started to use ones which were gender neutral and didn't have a gender on them, just had a gap so that she or he could be put in. And the idea that you would print a whole bunch of indentures and not assume that apprentices were he seemed to me to be such an interesting moment and maybe wonder what it was like to get one of those documents and see, oh, they're not assuming that an apprentice has to be a boy. It could be a girl. Let's leave space for that. The late 17th century is a time when bureaucracy is increasing and becoming more important in the formation of the state. And of course, these are not really part of the state, they're companies. But the paperwork is clearly both serving a purpose for the company and for the individual girls and families who are using them. And both sides keep the paperwork. So the City of London keeps one side of the paperwork and the end it comes back to the city and it gets speared on a spike and you can see the whole copy is done. And ideally, the other copy gets kept by the mistress or by the servant. And sometimes when they come back to try and work out whether they had a proper apprenticeship or not, or whether they're entitled to be free, they will bring the indenture folded up, they bring it back to the court of the Chamberlain of the City of London and they bring the original indenture. You can see a petition has been presented with an old indenture inside it or sometimes their father's indenture to prove they have an inherited right to a patrimonial freedom. You can almost see the documents moving through the city and getting dirty and folded up and coming back again. I always think, thinking about 16th century women, that they so often don't appear in records and don't have a sense of themselves as being written down. And for this work, I really had a sense that women did have a sense of their own place in the archive and had to kind of work that out themselves. How can toilet training cows help save the planet? Should we start renting our clothes? And why on earth is beds from the Happy Mondays now keeping bees? I'm Jimmy Doherty, TV presenter, farmer and conservationist. 
And these are just a few of the questions we'll be answering on my new podcast on Jimmy's Farm from History Hit. Join me on the farm to hear from the likes of the founder of the Eden Project, Sir Tim Smith. It is only people who don't know what they're doing that can do marvellous things in some areas because received wisdom will sometimes you'll talk yourself out of it if you've got lots of people who've done it before. Professor Dieter Helm on how to stop climate change. There may be all sorts of products like avocados and everything will have palm oil in it, etc. And these have not just long distances involved in it, but they're not actually producing what could be produced on the land and the frame that it's set. And my old friend, Jamie Oliver. I think I was stupid enough, naive enough, <laughs> and unspoilt enough about the world that we live in. Listen to On Jimmy's Farm now, wherever you get your podcasts. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, We've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. mentioned that many of these jobs are to do with fashion and the clothes industry. And this is clearly in an age in the late 17th century of consumer revolution. The fashion sector, I suppose, is changing in nature. How did this affect women's work? One of the key shifts has often been thought to be the move away from tightly tailored clothes and for development of mantuas. But a number of people working recently have stressed that actually the Mantua moment, the moment of a looser gowns of the late 17th century, isn't as significant as we used to think, because it's actually possible to buy and popular to buy ready-made garments long before that. And ready-made clothes are being sold in London through the 17th century, particularly from the mid-17th century. So there's that long before Mantuas are taking off at the end of the 17th century. There's also a lot of work in linen and undergarments particularly making things like smocks, which are relative. There's always been an idea that women can't tailor, that they shouldn't be doing the tailoring that follows the lines of the body. But there's more of a scepticism now amongst historians of dress about precisely what men did and precisely what women did and where those lines were. And it's clear as well that although women are very unlikely to call themselves a tailor or to be allowed to call themselves tailors, they are apprenticed in the Merchant Tailors Guild and they're sewing in that guild alongside merchant tailors, alongside tailors. So the line's not quite so clear. One of the big developments that was important for me was looking at the shopping galleries and the exchanges, the New Exchange, Royal Exchange, Westminster Hall. All these places had rows of little shops, ideal places for small-scale businesses to get going. The amount of goods that were crammed into these small shops, which are sometimes like six foot wide and 13 feet long, were incredible just kind of piles and piles of linen of various kinds and not just smocks and undergarments but men's suits women's suits lace so much lace so the inventories are really fascinating for that and in these shops were crammed often 
two apprentices or a mistress and an apprentice working together. One of the places you get a sense of how those shops works is in the shoplifting records of the Old Bailey, where somebody might squeeze themselves into a shop and sit down and somebody else and distract the apprentice or the mistress working in the shop and spirit away some lace. So they're very tight, very small, and a kind of social world of their own, but it's the period in which shopping is becoming a massive leisure activity for both men and women. And the Royal Exchange is particularly interesting because it's bang in the middle of a city. It's not in the West End, which is being more established as a shopping area. It's the kind of last days when shopping and that kind of consumption is part of a city and very close to the business world as well and to practices of investment and coffee houses and news. And because we know more now about women's investment practices, we can see a connection between women keeping shops and other kinds of financial activities. I think the fashion revolution and the financial revolution can also be seen as tied up with women playing a significant part in both of them. And you give us a picture of sort of changing opportunities for women's work in the early modern period. So at one point you note that the Broiderers Company I love that it's called the Broiderers Company for embroidery, but the Broiderers Company had forbidden female apprentices back in 1609, but women are being apprenticed by them in the later 17th century. So I suppose we've got several different things going on. We've talked already about women's work being erased from the records, the question of whether women's work is becoming more formalised, but also the developments of the 17th century. What sort of developments might be changing the nature or the opportunities for women's work in this period? We should always take what guilds and what companies and institutions generally say about what work women are doing and what they're allowed to do with a heavy pinch of salt. We know also this is the period in which women technically don't vote. And yet when there is voting, we get men saying a bunch of single women came and cast their votes. This is highly irregular and quite disrespectful. But, you know, it still happens. So the rules aren't always the actual rules. What changed in the 17th century? Although as historians, now we have quite a consensus that the overturned worlds of the Civil War didn't result in lasting change for women, there were some really important relocations of shifts of, and particularly in social terms. Lots of the girls who came into London to be apprentices were the daughters of clergy probably some of them of clergy who didn't have their positions anymore. Lots of them were orphans. Lots of them were daughters of gentry who had fallen upon hard times, probably also to do with the shifting loyalties of the post-Civil War period. So the late 1640s is the moment when we start seeing girls being taken into companies in quite small numbers, starting with the cloth workers. And the next big thing is, in terms of women's work, is the fire. There's a desperate need for people to start shops again after the fire. It's easier to get a place in London, and there seems to have been a certain relaxation of company rules and of freedom rules to encourage people to become free. Companies actually want people to become free, and they encourage women to get the freedom. And the rebuilding of the Royal Exchange after the fire is a moment in which women move from not just holding shops and hiring them out to other people as investments, but to actually working in the shops. And by the 1690s, half of the shops in the Royal Exchange have the names of women in the list of leaseholders, probably even more than that. And I suppose you've alluded already to the sense that there might also be generational change, that once you've got some women who've done it, then they're more likely to take on female apprentices and so the numbers will grow. I was hoping for more, but I have got some sense that those single women who became free in their own right, when girls get apprenticed to those, those girls are slightly more likely to become free themselves and to set up their own shops rather than to just be apprenticed for a short period of time and then disappear from the records. So there's some sense for a kind of career seamstresses who set up generations. You can trace, there's a woman called Bridget Flowerdew, who originally comes from Norfolk, who has generations of apprentices in London through the late 17th century and into the 18th. So you can see them passing on the skills and the business onto people. There's lots of connections between the stallholders in Royal Exchange in particular. Lots of women holding stalls together, working next to each other and living in houses together in the same area, the same parish or in adjacent parishes. So there's a sense of continuity and development over time. There's also a sense of a locality and the significance of not just the West End, but particular parts of the city as well in normalising and supporting this kind of women's work. I think you're absolutely right about a sense of generational change. And I found Wills helpful for that, particularly because you could see, say, a patriarch of a family 
referring to having paid for the apprenticeships of his own children, boys and girls, and then laying out money in his will to apprentice any more of the grandchildren who didn't yet have a place when he died. And you mentioned single women being free. How did marital status affect women's work? It's the age of opportunity for single women in the late 17th century. More single people than there have been for a long time before, up to 25% of the population of those who are born in the 1620s seem to be not marrying. It's really high for a free industrial society. And we also know that in London, there's very high female migration into the service sector. So that there's a 60-40 gender ratio. And all this means that along with the relative encouragement into shopkeeping in London. There's quite a lot of female-headed households and a lot of women. There's a particular kind of constellation of households which you see that only seems to happen with mistresses and their apprentices and servants, where you have a mistress and one apprentice, so this kind of dyad. You don't see that with men. They can't really support an apprentice on their own. They need to have a housekeeper or a wife or a servant in the house. So it also works on a very small scale. That's really interesting because that suggests that we're going to have female apprentices taken on in circumstances that are significantly poorer than those in which you could take on a male apprentice. Yes, it's quite a good thing to do if you can get some money for taking on an apprentice. Of course, what are you going to do with money you've got by stock for a shop? So the apprentice is your investment, essentially. You can use the apprentice to invest in your shop and then you've just got to hope you can keep the apprentice so that she can work in the shop and then you'll be able to buy more stock and keep it going. So it is actually a good way of starting a business as well. you also get on more of the margins of the economy and in penal institutions like Bridewell, you get a sense of apprenticeship as a sort of desperate way of keeping going for women who've just gone bankrupt and have still got their apprentice and don't know what to do and the apprentice doesn't know if she should leave or stay. So there are women and sometimes partnerships of women also. You can take apprentices into a partnership of two women too. There are women who are only just getting by who are doing this too. So I suppose those female apprentices although they aren't domestic servants, are probably going to have to do some measure of servant work, housekeeping work as well. It's going to be a box and cock situation. (laughs) The elite apprentices often say that they've been specifically told they're not to do housework and that it's part of their indentures. Part of the arrangements being made is they're not going to do the housework. They're only going to sew and they're only going to do a particular kind of sewing. They're only going to do fine sewing. They're not going to do rough sewing. Poorer apprentices don't have that choice, but it's also clear from the household listings that houses that have a female apprentice in are much less likely to have a servant than other houses or houses that have a male apprentice in. So male apprentices are likely to have a girl to do work too. Female apprentices are likely to be covering some of that, even if they didn't think that's what they were doing. On the other hand, they do come out of it with a skill that they can say they've had a skill training. All, perhaps, of these apprentices are adolescents. And although they didn't really have a kind of category of that, they were trying to negotiate their emergence as adult women. And they're in a society that cared about internalised codes of politeness and manners and living with people who aren't their parents. Can we talk about this requirement for submission to their mistress and the inevitable insubordination, the resistance to authority and the discipline that these teenagers would have experienced? For the cases that have left the best records, there's a, a class dynamic or a rank dynamic going on too in that what we seem to have often are girls from genteel and often fairly rural backgrounds with some experience of London coming into merchants' households or surgeons' households. Households have got quite a lot of luxury goods, a different kind of religious background possibly, and maybe different norms of how you behave in the city. I've only got sort of glimpses of that, but the whole social world is probably different from what they used to. And of course, they have a great deal more independence as well. A female apprentices in this period are largely working outside the house as well. We think of apprenticeship as a domestic training, but because lots of the shops are small and outside the place where they're living, they're going off to the Royal Exchange, working there and then coming back to the house at the end of the day. So they're not necessarily with their mistresses the whole time. They're often, or might be in a shop with other apprentices all working together. So there's lots of potential for kind of escaping from the supervisory eye. And the dynamics of training are also very close. It involves sort of difficult, close, aggravating work and a lot of unpicking. There's some record of violence from mistresses to apprentices and occasionally masters as well. And that's sort of expected because that's one of the things you can complain about in court. But you do get a sense that we're still in this very familiar 17th century world in which violence is a key means of discipline and of enforcing the order of the household. There's also some more intense emotional 
dynamics to do, I think, with the dependence of mistresses often on the money that the girls bring and the fact they have to train this apprentice, they can't afford to lose her or the shop will go bust. That adds all sorts of other layers. I think we still haven't paid enough attention to the dynamics between women in patriarchal societies. There's always more to be said about that. But it's very intriguing in this particular world that mistresses of these apprentices mostly weren't apprenticed themselves. So they're giving the girls a training that they didn't themselves experience. They're often quite young and only just starting to have children themselves. And they're balancing the training of the apprentices with having babies. And sometimes the apprentices are having to be helped out. Although to be fair, it seems to be as much the boys as the girls who are being told to hold a baby while something else is going on. And there aren't really any rules. There's only one work by Hannah Woolley, who I mentioned earlier, that really says anything about female apprentices. That doesn't say much, but it tells them not to be awkward and to behave well in the household and not make stupid faces and mess around with their food. And it's very much geared at kind of adolescent manners. You know, how do you learn how to form yourself as an adult? You get a sense of the possible awkwardness of girls at this stage. There's a lot of preoccupation of clothes as well as food. They're always wearing their clothes wrong, wearing their best clothes when they shouldn't be, eating too much. Clothes and food do seem things that teenagers would be concerned about and would become flashpoints of authority. Absolutely. And I think probably even more so when they're working with clothes, they've been sent off with a suit of clothes and they often want different ones or their mistress says that their clothes aren't good enough to work in the shop there's probably difference of fashion between the provincial places they often come from and the city where they're living and they also tend to buy or part buy their things from the shops in the royal exchange possibly even from the shops which working on sometimes goods disappear handkerchiefs vanish masks disappear there's lots of accessories around as well it's a very accessory rich fashion culture which they're also i think very interested in clothes are a terrific marker of status and i think the thing about apprentice girls is it's not really very clear what their status is and how they ought to be dressing. They've got to look good for the customers coming to the shop to display the materials. They've also got to be, as you said, subordinate for mistresses in the shop. And they've got to be able to go off and start their own business and not be subordinate and be firm. One of the things you have to do in these shops is to negotiate a lot, let people get away with too much credit. And that's what you've got to learn to do as an apprentice. The moment when an apprentice gets access to the cash box is an important one when she becomes something like a partner in the shop not till then should she be going to the cash box on her own so they do have to develop an authority somehow and that's interesting because mostly what we've thought about in terms of girls education and training is how do they learn to be a wife how do they learn to be subordinate they can't afford to but they've got to learn how to assert themselves in business and one of the stories you tell looking at this kind of dynamic and particularly about status in terms of rank and what we would think of as class is the story of Catherine Venner and one detail that I found fascinating was that her act of defiance was looking her mistress in the face with outstretched hands. What was offensive about this? I spent ages trying to think about this and looking up hands, looking at every mention of hands in early modern books to see what they could possibly be. I'm still not really sure about the hands, but I think the looking in the face, it really reminded me that there's actually quite a lot of prescriptions for women to look with downcast eyes. And even when you're working in a shop and you're thinking about work rather than, oh, I'm so chaste, you're still supposed to have downcast eyes and not to meet, particularly men in the eye, but clearly you're not supposed to meet women who are superior to you in the eye as well. The hands, I think, is she gesticulating somehow or supposedly being humble but not really being humble? I'm not sure we'll ever know. That's one of the frustrating things about gesture in the past is it's clearly often deeply meaningful, but nobody can be bothered to tell us exactly what the meaning of it is. So all we can say is, well, hands obviously really matter. And it matters to people to go to court and to explain exactly what was going on. They're very invested in telling this long, chatty, chatty story about every single little thing, and particularly all the witnesses are very keen, witnesses for mistresses who include male apprentices, other female apprentices, sometimes even the sisters of the apprentices in one case. They're very keen on laying out exactly what went wrong and where authority was challenged. There's a lot of talk about proudness and sullenness and sort of attitude and demeanour. The way that the meaning of gestures in the past is lost is fascinating, but makes total sense because it's so quotidian. There's no need to explain it. If we had a record today where we say, and he put his middle finger up, you wouldn't go on to say, by which he meant to indicate so-and-so, because you would assume <laughs> the reader understood precisely. What you've told us, though, also points to the existence or evidence of female agency in that early phase of life before marriage, which is fascinating. Yes, I was very struck years ago by something that Natalie Davis wrote about female agency, saying that for 16th century women, the moment of agency is the moment of marriage when they get to say, yes, I'm going to marry you. No, I've got to marry you. You get to set yourself on this path 
And these women, I think, aren't in that position. You're right in that workplace life is really full of autonomy and agency and lots of decisions. I hadn't thought so much about the decision-making that is involved, but this kind of keeping a small shop does involve a lot of decision-making about where and which lease and whether you're going to expand into the next shop and who you're going to work with and all that material. And one of the provisions of borough custom in this period, which is still going, is that married women who aren't allowed to trade on their own, aren't allowed to contract debts in their own name because of common law, can be treated as single women, be treated as femme-sole traders. So when they're trading, they can have the benefits of being treated as if they're single and their husbands aren't responsible for their debts. Great for their husbands, but also they can contract debts and do trades and business in their own name. It adds another light to the sense of what marriage is like, and particularly marriage in the world of business and trade and the development of the middling sort. So the place of female autonomy and decision-making and what's been otherwise described as agentic norms, being expected to exercise agency, is really powerful here. How do you think your research means that we should rethink the place of work in women's minds, you know, what if anything can we learn about how their occupations shape their identities? I think historians have done a wonderful job recently of thinking about big change in relation to women's work and rethinking the place of, for example, proto-capitalism and industrialization in shifting women's contribution to the workplace, women's work, women's economic roles. And I think we've still got a way to go in thinking what that means individually. I'm hoping that putting together lots of individual stories and really drilling down into these kinds of cases will help us recapture a number of worlds, not just for more elite women who I've got better evidence of, but the women who appear on the margins of their stories who are generally poorer and of lower status, but for whom workplace life is equally, if not more, significant. I think we need to think about it as a really important contributor to the kinds of identity formation that seemed to be happening in the late 17th century. The kinds of reshape who you are slightly away from family constructions and in relation to other organisations, other collectivities. Now, guilds do provide a collectivity for women in some way. There's a lot of women who apply to join the guilds of their fathers to become members of their father's guilds in the late 17th century and the early 18th century, partly perhaps for charitable reasons, maybe for more political alliances. It's quite unclear why it is they want to be, but they want to be buried in the guild church. They want to have some connection with the guild. And in 17th century France and 18th century France, there's really lovely evidence for seamstresses making their own guilds and basically constituting an occupational identity which is a challenge to the one that is organised around the patriarchal household. It's more of a sisterly collectivity. And we don't have anything that clear for early modern London, but we do have some way, I think, in which we can think about the place that work provides in women's life cycle, not as a constant, but as something which they work around and which relates to childbearing and marriage and being single, the way in which they make it flexible, just for centrality of working and earning which we haven't sufficiently thought about as part of identity. I'd like to end by thinking about the nature of writing history and the idea of using individual narratives as the fabric of women's history. It feels that there has long been a sense that if you use individual narratives, that this is anecdotal, that these are scraps, that there's not sufficient amounts of information to develop a analysis or indeed a narrative around what's happening in the past. And of course, your work is absolutely full, as you said, of quantitative research as well as qualitative research. But what do you think you have realised about how we can use individual lives in writing women's history? I guess the most obvious advantage of using individual lives, the necessity of using individual lives, is the profound engagement that it brings. Not identification, but a sense of the potential of individual lives and how women can imagine themselves by looking at the kind of play out of one particular life. It becomes possible to see what the bounds, what the extent of possibilities at one particular moment Ah, I do think these cases, these stories are particularly well enmeshed in their social world, but reconstructing them also involves reconstructing the streets on which they walk and the clothes on which they wear and all the other people that facilitate that kind of life of fashion. And I think also when we're thinking about material culture and fashion and the products of work, it's really been important for the history of gender and 
material culture, but we think about the contribution of women as workers and when we look to the other side of the shop counter, to women serving in shops and the kind of emotional labour as well as physical labour that's involved in that. And the sewing and the re-sewing and the remaking that goes into all those garments, two of the things that start with me thinking about that, which I hadn't been so aware of before, were the role of pins, meaning you have to take your garments apart and put back together again. So you've always got a pin to hand. There's a lovely example of a female servant pricking peeps with a pin when he tries to grope her in church. Of course, she's always got pins to hand. You've always got a useful pin. And the fact that you don't just get a fashionable garment and keep it on, you have to take it apart, have it laundered by a woman, have it put back together by a woman, put it back on again over and over again. So fashion has to keep on being remade. So a female labour of it is always there. And ultimately, women's history needs both the big structures and the manifold stories. Some parts of it is always still going to be hard to figure out what the bigger structures are, while the small stories are sometimes not always easier to find. But I think the individuality of these cases has really helped me balance out prescriptions and rules on one hand, and the blunt economic facts, which we know about the overall sort of lack of reward of women's work, and as you said, the insistence on marginalisation, and the actual way in which women negotiate their way through these bigger structures, both economic and ideological. Well, thank you very much for introducing us to this topic. We have barely scratched the surface of <laughs> the amazing cases and stories and analysis that you can find in Genius Trade women in work in 17th century London, which is out now from Cambridge University Press and very much worth your money and your time. Professor Gowing, it has been wonderful to talk with you about this. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Thank you so much. What a wonderful pleasure. It's been a great conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit. Take a moment, if you would, to rate the podcast wherever you listen to it, including on Spotify. It really helps new listeners find the show, and we want to spread the Tudor, and not just the Tudor, love. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.